0: Good evening, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is Anne Bogle creator of the blog, The Modern Mrs. Darcy, and the podcast, What Should I Read Next? I first heard about Anne when a friend called me breathless with excitement to tell me that The Modern Mrs. Darcy had recommended one of my novels. Her new book, I'd Rather Be Reading, is a delightful examination of the reading life and was published earlier this month. I'm interviewing Anne at the 14th Annual Bookmarks Festival of Books and Authors in Winston-Salem, and we're thrilled to have her as part of this year's festival. And welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Your book is called I'd Rather Be Reading. Why would you rather be reading?
1: Oh, because I'm a book person, Charlie, you know.
0: (laughs) I want to spend most of our time talking about the reading life, but first tell us a little bit about your new book.
1: I'd Rather Be Reading is an essay collection for readers who believe that reading isn't just a hobby or a relaxing pastime, but it's a lifestyle. It's something you do and you take seriously because... As you imagine, many readers, many devoted readers, feel like reading isn't just something they do to pass the time, but the books they read and the ones they choose to put on their shelves are truly part of their identity. It's part of what makes them who they are.
0: It's one of those wonderful books I found that I could just, I mean, I actually sat down and read the whole thing very quickly. It's a, it's a slim book. Um, So it's a great read, but it's also one of those books you can just sort of dip into any place at any time. You don't have to necessarily read the chapters in a particular order. Would you read us an excerpt from the book to give our listeners just a a hint of what it's like?
1: I'd be happy to. I'm going to read from the essay Bookworm Problems. And the essays do cover a lot of ground. Uh, Some are wistful, like where I talk about how the first house of my adult life was next door to a wonderful local library. Mm. Uh, Some are funny, like when I talk about how to organize your bookshelves. I hope all are relatable, that readers will see themselves in every anecdote. But Bookworm Problems is on the funnier side, and they are problems only devoted book lovers truly understand. (laughs) So here goes. You have reached your limit on library checkouts, and nine books are waiting for you on hold, having come in all at the same time. You must decide which books to let go of to remain in the library's good graces. You check out more library books than you can carry. You check out more library books than you can fit in your tote bag. You forget your tote bag. You visit the library in rain that's coming down so hard, your tote bag is powerless against it. You don't live next door to the library anymore, so you don't pick up your reserves every day. You don't pick up your reserves for a week and your stack is enormous. You pile the stack in your passenger seat and your car yells at you because it thinks you have an unbuckled passenger. You take five books to the pool because you can't decide what to read next. You can't comfortably manage your purse because you shove three books in on the way out the door, unable to decide what to read next. You pack 12 books for a five-day vacation because you can't decide what to read next. You're in the middle of a great book, but you need to go to work or to dinner or to bed. You're in the middle of a great book and you forget to eat dinner. You keep reading just one more chapter until 2 a.m. and you cannot keep your eyes open the next day. Your favorite book becomes a movie and you're terrified to see it because you're fond of the way you picture the characters and hear their voices in your head. They make your favorite book into a movie and delete your favorite scene. They make your favorite book into a movie and it's terrible. You are one third of the way into a good book, and you realize you accidentally purchased the abridged version. You realize halfway through a book that it's part of a series, and you inadvertently started with book four. You finish a book with a cliffhanger ending, immediately look for the next book in the series, and realize the author hasn't even begun writing the next installment. The anticipated publication date is four years away. And it goes on. That's not the end of that essay, but I am... Happy, you're probably mostly sad to say that those are based on a personal experience, all of those, and some of the essay are based on the experience of reader friends who said, Oh, listen to this horrible thing that happened to yeah. me. And only a fellow book lover really gets why it's a big deal. I
0: think the one that resonates with me, the, well, the two that really resonate with me, one is the alarm on your car going off because there's a bag of books in the passenger seat. I've done that many, <laughs> many times. But also the, 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 Cliffhanger at the end, and the book hasn't been written yet. I've had that experience now from the other point of view. Um, I've written a middle grades book that hasn't sold yet. We're getting ready to start trying to sell it. But I've read it to a lot of kids in Winston-Salem, and they all want to know what happens next. I'm like, I don't know what happens next. (laughs) And not only do I not know what happens next... If the book doesn't sell, I'll—I'm not going to figure out what's going to happen next. Just you know, so so I have—I have children who will berate me in the street because they have been left with this you know sort of cliffhanger. Then.
1: Well, that sounds like the book's going to sell, Charlie.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, they want to
1: know what happens if, next. If
0: they may have to just start their own publishing company because <laughs> of that. You know. That, Um, So I have to confess here, and this sort of, I think, plays into part of what you write about in in your book, that I found all these different points of connection in in your book. From You mentioned one of the first bookstores I ever visited in in New York City, Books of Wonder. You talk about a quote from William Morris that pretty much defines the way my wife and I have created our home that we live in. Uh, You mentioned some somewhat obscure authors who were like right at the top of my authors that I love list, Um, and you write also that you sometimes feel like an author that you've never met is a friend because you've come to know that person so well through their books. And I kind of felt that way reading your book that there were all these, all these connections, like we're going to get along. This is going to be fun. (laughs) Um, it's not really a question. It's just something I lay out there, but, but can you tell me about some of those experiences you've had where you haven't met the author, but you, you feel like it's somebody you want to sit down and have a cup of coffee with?
1: Oh yes. Well, I think, As humans, we all like to feel like someone understands us and they don't have to be a three-dimensional person or they don't even have to be alive in this century for you to feel that connection with someone who's writing a story that just speaks straight to the heart of what you're experiencing or something that's happened in your past. Uh, Something that really jumps out right now is the works of Madeline Lengel, And I haven't read all her works and I know that people feel... um, very uh, fondly, or complicatedly, if you've read, listening to Madeline, yeah. about her for a variety of reasons. But when I was in my 30s, uh, trying to write, constantly exhausted, feeling overwhelmed with work and family and a puppy, we got a puppy at the same time <laughs> we had, I mean, what were we thinking? Um, that's when I started reading Madeline L'Engle for the first time as an adult. And in her, um, in her four-book series called The Crosswix Journals, um, she writes... Extensively about the tired 30s and how, when you have career and family, or you know, some, some kind of person who wants something from you because you're alive and you're in a relationship and that's the way it works, it is just hard. It just is. And I felt like, oh, there is someone who understands me where I don't feel like I need to complain to my friends, like, oh, I'm so exhausted all the time, or, oh, it's so hard to write. Those are such cliches. Even if you're living them, nobody Mm -hmm. wants to hear about it. But I felt this is the way it was uh, decades ago. It's still the way it is now. It will be all as well. It is okay. (laughs) But it was an enormous source of reassurance to me that it wasn't just me.
0: Yeah, yeah. I was talking to Kelly Barnhill earlier this morning about the balance between being a mother of small children and trying to be a writer, but what about the balance between being a mother of small children and trying to be a reader? How does how does that play out?
1: You know, that's a question I get all the time. Um, I have enormous respect for Lauren Groff, who wouldn't answer your <laughs> question right now. But um, it is a question I get a lot. And one of the reasons that I wonder why I do get it so frequently from women, aside from the fact that we know like 95% of the people who read my blog are women, the percentage of male listeners is much higher on the podcast. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure why that is, though. But um women read. Women especially read fiction, and we believe from the data that they read at much greater rates than men, and I wonder if that isn't the reason that it feels like such a loss to so many women, mm-hmm. is that more women are reading in the first place. Um, it's its tricky, but there are things you can do. Um, I just took a question last night from a reader when I was on book tour who said, I had a baby two months ago, and I feel like I've lost my mojo, and I don't know how to get it back, but... I know that it's something I really miss, and my advice to her was to—we're um, we talking in a physical bookstore, proclaiming the love of printed paper—but put an e-reader app on your phone so that even if you're awkwardly like giving the baby a bottle or nursing the baby, you can hold that thing in the air. I'm old enough that I didn't have a smartphone when I had my yeah. children, yeah. but um, I, you know, balance paperbacks on top of them, but. And they're none the worse for it. Maybe that's one of the reasons they're readers. They just soaked it in. But my advice to all readers who are interested in reading more is to find a book that's handy, that you are really excited to read. This is not the time to read that book you've been meaning to read, or you feel like you should read. We want something that you just cannot wait to open. And then to read in the pockets. I mean, we all have five, 10 minutes of time when we're in line at Trader Joe's, or waiting for the water to come to a boil, or in the carpool line, or waiting for our coworkers so we can go catch the bus together. Those little five and 10 minute intervals don't feel like a lot, but they really add up.
0: I think that's really a great idea. That the, the read the read that you're excited about. I do that when I'm traveling. I always mm-hmm. try to hold back an arc or a galley or something that I've, I've really been looking forward to reading, um, and I'm able to concentrate on that better on an airplane in, a, in an airport lounge mm-hmm. than I would something where I feel like, well, I'm supposed to read this book and you know, I I need sort of a higher level of concentration. Mm -hmm. At Bookmarks, one of the things that we do is work to build community around what is an inherently solitary activity, Mm -hmm. the activity of reading. How can those two contradictory ideas work together? And also, as a sub-question, is this the best time ever to build communities of readers?
1: Oh, interesting. Well, I love that Bookmarks makes explicit something that I have come to believe strongly in And the years since I first started talking about books online, and that is that reading is solitary, but if you leave it there, you miss out on half the pleasures of yeah. the reading life. Mm-hmm. And I think what so many readers have found, and ironically, often through the internet, is that um, you read and you feel like you are alone, but when you start talking about the books you love, whether it's online, whether it's a literary festival, whether it's with a friend over a coffee, you realize that so many people are having a similar reading experience as you, and it's just so nice to feel like you're, you're part of something bigger than yourself, Are you just sitting at home with your books on a Saturday afternoon. Something else I love about reading explicitly in community, is books I found to be such a shortcut to talking about what really matters most Mm. in life. Because we wouldn't sit down and say, hey, here's the most important thing you need to know from the depths of my soul, that would be a little weird, but we can connect over a favorite novel about those very same topics and talk about them very naturally um, and connect in a way we wouldn't be able to without that connection of the written word. And oh, is this the best time? Well, that makes me think of the you know the old chestnut about the tree. Like the best time to plant it was a hundred years ago. But the next best time is today. Um, this is a great time to be a reader, and it's a great time to jump into the reading community in a larger sense. If listeners aren't a part of that yet,
0: I mean, I just feel like we're at a, at a time when yesterday we had Dave Pilkey here. We had thousands mm-hmm. of kids got to see mm-hmm. this author that they have such admiration for. When I was a kid. I never saw any authors that I had admiration for. That just wasn't something that happened. And now there seem to be so many different ways, book festivals, uh, you know, the internet, author websites, for readers to connect with authors and also for readers to connect to each other. And to me, that's very exciting. And it's, it's one of the reasons it's been exciting to be part of Bookmarks over the last two or three years is to see how these book clubs just sort of come out of the woodwork and, and people are so excited to... It's like they've been doing this secret thing yeah. in in the dark in the closet, and somebody said it's okay. Yeah. We all do that. You come out and talk about it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I hadn't thought about it like that, but yes, you're so right because something that I've really been thinking about um, this fall is I'm traveling, even. To more bookstores than normal because I'm on book tour. Uh, my family is the kind of family that will bend hours out of the way to go to a bookstore yep. that we're really excited about if we happen to be remotely in the vicinity when we're on a road trip. But we've really been discussing how there's a new generation of bookstore owners who are really encouraging vibrant community. Um, they are not uh snobby or stodgy or, you know, nose in your air, literary in quotes, the bad sense, but just are so enthusiastic and excited about reading and about inviting others into that community. And I think that's really emblematic of what, what you're referencing, what is happening right now. Mm-hmm. Um, just so many readers are so excited. Book clubs are booming. Print sales are up. Um, it makes me so happy to see. It does feel like a great time to be a reader.
0: I think that's interesting what you say about bookstore owners, because I certainly, when I think about the bookstores... Of my childhood, they were very commercial feeling endeavors. They were a mm-hmm. place where the purpose was to sell books. Mm-hmm. And now I go to independent bookstores, and it feels like the purpose is to build community. Uh, in in many cases, and you know nobody's starting an independent bookstore as a get rich quick scheme. You know, so they're doing it because they they care about these mm-hmm. things, and it's wonderful with you know author events and chances at, at, at bookmarks. We have you know book clubs that come and meet in the store all the time, and we have a wall in the store that, that's, here's what all the book clubs in town are reading, and you can go and see immediately who else is reading the same book that, that you're reading. You've been described as a tastemaker in the world of books. How, how did that start? I mean, how do you go from, I think I'll just write a blog, to there's a whole community that is looking to you to decide what to read next?
1: I think it goes back to the point of connection. Um, and a little bit of uncertainty on the part of people who are um, making their way back into their reading life after a long hiatus. I know I have a lot of readers and listeners who took a short break that became a long break, mm-hmm. and then they don't know how to get back into reading after a decade. I, that's that's a good question, and it's a word that I'm not entirely comfortable <laughs> with. But, I think it's actually on the know. back
0: of your book, so, or at least on the galley. So. <laughs>
1: It's good marketing Somebody talking. sees you that <laughs> way. <laughs> no, I will, I will acknowledge that to be true. Um, but that is a good question. I think, I think people might connect to reading, not just a standard book review, because that's not typically what I do. Mm-hmm. But um, they, they really like to hear before they pick up a book what the reading experience is going to be like, Um, what like tones and themes are going to speak to where they are in their life or um, the experience of those that they are in relationship with. And how is a book going to make them feel? And while a critic's standard book review may not shed light on those things and make them really excited to pick up a book, I think when they can hear what the reading experience might be like, why this book may be worth their time. And I try to talk about books in a way, um, because I don't believe that every book is for every reader, that the readers who would enjoy that book will hear it like, uh, a <laughs> yeah. dog whistle sounds horrible, but they will recognize the call and think that book is for me. And they will right. be excited to pick it up. And I think if you can get excited about reading again, then I, I hope they want to come back to the source, whether it was me or any other author or, bookseller or publisher or I just hope they keep coming back for more so they'll keep reading.
0: Well, I think, again, one of the reasons that, that independent booksellers are doing well, that book clubs are doing well, is that people, even even in an age when we have all these different sorts of media, mm. that the number one thing that still drives people to select a particular book is word of mouth. Mm-hmm. And I think your, your listeners and your readers feel because of the way you present yourself they feel like they know you and they feel that what they're reading on your blog or hearing on your podcast to them that is word of mouth you know it's not just some stranger you know who works for the new yorker writing and writing a review but
1: right like we were saying it's that personal connection and that's a good point i think that perhaps why those resources that you know and trust to find your books are so important right now is because there have never been more options. And it's easy to get completely overwhelmed with the amount of titles that come out on any given Tuesday, sure. let alone week after week after week. And you know we're a couple thousand years behind on all the possible options we could read. So when you don't know what to read, you might read nothing if you don't have a trusted source to steer you in the right direction.
0: So I'm going to take a slight digression here based on what you just said, because I've worked with at least four different publicists at mm-hmm. Penguin, none of whom has ever been able to explain to me why books are always published on Tuesdays. Do you have any <laughs> idea?
1: <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> but I do know, <laughs> I do know it's changing that now a lot of books are coming out on the 1st, the 15th, the last day of the month, no matter the day of the week. People are experimenting. Again, I don't know why, but but I know it's happening. Dave
0: Pilkey's new Dog Man book, the next one, is coming out on Christmas Eve, which I thought was a fascinating choice. I have an
1: eight-year-old who uh, loves Dave Pilkey, and we have discussed this at length in my house. Yeah. Why?
0: There's so many wonderful new books published every season, as you said, way more than any of us could ever read. But... Jane Austen, Charles Dickens, P.G. Woodhouse, Dorothy Sayers, they're all still there. Mm -hmm. How do you balance the new and the old in your reading life?
1: Oh, that's a great question. For me, it depends on the season. Every year on Modern Mrs. Darcy, we put out a big summer reading guide. As usual, I'm using the Royal We. I mean, it's me who reads (laughs) all those books. And I only recommend books in the summer reading guide that I've read and can vouch for and can answer reader questions about content. So that means between about January and... April 1st I am reading all new books Mm -hmm. and after that I am tired and I am ready because I love that but it's like I don't want to compare books to broccoli but it doesn't feel like a a whole reading life to me it feels like a segment of it and I'm ready to balance that out with other genres just because there's a lot more fiction than non in the summer reading guide and some of that has to do with publication dates and some of that has to do with What people read in the summer and I believe you know any book you take to the beach is a beach read And yet (laughs) the modern war and peace is not going to go in the summer reading guide Um, But after that I'm ready for the old. I really do try to have a mix of old and new especially after reading all The new for four months a year I am ready to let someone else do the work of vetting the titles for me and some of that is just the work of time Um, I there are certainly unfound gems that didn't get the attention they deserved and I hope to do that in Summer Reading Guide is to read all these galleys some of which I'm delighted to find and some of which I wish a a critic or a trusted friend had said you can save your time on that one Um, but it's on the whole um, good works endure and it's nice to be reading things that are five or, you know, 50 or a couple hundred years old after yeah.
0: that. I'm reminded, uh, listening to you talk about an essay that Lewis Carroll wrote who called uh, Feeding the Mind. And he talks about, mm-hmm. yes, we need to read, you know, these, and, and he's, you know, writing as a Victorian clergyman, mm-hmm. but we need to read these, you know... Treatises on religion and theology, but then we also need to, you know, have things to cleanse the palate and have things mm-hmm. that are lighter. And he he was a big proponent of not just reading the same kind of thing all the time. Uh, and and he compared, you know, you said about the broccoli, he compared it to, to a diet, you know, mm-hmm. that you would not have a diet of just one type of food. You wanted to have something that was that was very. Uh. So you said you read a lot of books for professional reasons, like me. You read a lot of galleys. I read galleys for. For the podcast, for uh, people have blurb requests, or your friend has written a book, does your do your professional responsibilities sometimes mean that you discover gems that you think you would have missed otherwise?
1: Oh, definitely. And well, you know, one of the pleasures and perils of having a literary <laughs> podcast is that you talk to readers about what they are reading. I mean, you're an author; you talk to other readers about what they are reading, and peril because my to be read list is at this point unconquerable oh, sure. even if okay. i didn't add a single title yeah. to it i couldn't finish it in a hundred years but um oh you hear about so many great books that well that i at least never would have gravitated to in the bookstore um never would have found never would have heard about i might have heard the plot description and gone oh eh, yeah that's not for me but at the recommendation of someone who knows books i will go way out on the limb mm-hmm. and i'm often so happy that i was willing to
0: I I find it fascinating to hear people's stories of how they ended up reading one of my novels, and so often it's as simple as the cover caught my eye in the bookstore, you know, uh, and and it can be those those simple things that that make us open to the first page, and then if the first page works for us, then. The second page and then maybe we take it up to the register, you know.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, I, I want to steal for a moment from another famous radio show and ask you, what are your desert island books? If you I'm not gonna give you a specific number, but what are the books that if you only had one shelf you would absolutely have to have to keep in the house?
1: It depends on the day. <laughs> I would take I love Wallace Stegner. I'd <laughs> take Crossing to Safety. Even though I've already read it so many times, it keeps surprising me, which is one of the reasons I love it. I would take some Wendell Berry, but it would be hard to decide which. Uh, Maybe some poetry, maybe Jaber Crow or Hannah Coulter. Um, A more contemporary book I really loved is Station 11 by Emily St. John Mandel. Oh,
0: yeah, I just read that recently. Yeah, Yeah,
1: I really enjoyed it more than once. And uh, then I'd have to take some Jane Austen, although my favorites rotate there. Right now, I'd say I'd take maybe Emma. In Pride and Prejudice, mm-hmm. and oh, am I out yet? What
0: we'll, we'll go with? Well, this. you have you have a nice okay. shelf. That's that's yeah, good. Yeah. I mean, it's a hard question. I think you're right. It does it does change day to day. I mean, I I do have a shelf. I, I'm a book collector, so I have shelves and shelves and shelves that are my book collection. I have shelves and shelves and shelves that are my to read list or my recently read list. But then I also have a few shelves or these are these are the old favorites that I want to return to again and again these are the friends that I want to spend time Mm -hmm. with and I think that's one of the lovely things about rereading is that they're your friends they 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 make you comfortable you know
1: so you're a rereader too
0: oh yeah I'm definitely a rereader
1: some people are very opposed to that but I am right
0: there with you. When I was a child, my family spent the, our summers up in the North Carolina mountains in a pretty isolated house on the top of a hill. And there was a shelf of battered old paperbacks. And I would begin every summer, usually with The Hobbit mm-hmm. or Huck Finn. You know, and those are just, they had sort of migrated up there over the years. And so, that came to me to be sort of a a comfort thing a symbol of okay this is is the beginning of I can read whatever I want to have the whole summer in front of me I'm going to start out with an old friend it's you know easy because I know it and I don't have to Mm -hmm. work too hard and then I can you know eventually get to the the summer reading list of 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 new books as well.
1: Like an old friend I love it.
0: yeah to those of us who live what you call the reading life. Reading is a major part of our world. You've been listening to us talk about how reading dominates our lives. We flip from bookshop to bookshop. We go to readings and signings. Most of the people we hang out with belong to book clubs. We know the release date of our favorite author's next book. (laughs) But what role does the reading life play in the broader society? Are we a niche group? Are we just this tiny sliver? Are we really an important part of society?
1: Well, of course, I think we're an important part (laughs) Something I've been surprised to discover um, really just in the past couple years since we launched the podcast is how many readers thought they were the only one, Mm. but for whatever reason, they decided to start talking about the fact that reading was one of their hobbies. And I'll get emails that say, I used to think this sounded really lame, but I decided to do it. Or they'd mention that they listened to your podcast or mine and a friend would say, oh, I didn't know that you were into that. And so it's been delightful to hear how many readers thought that they were uh, part of a super niche group and Mm. actually they knew passionate book lovers in their their neighborhoods, in their communities, and they had no idea until they started talking about it. But I love books for many reasons, but one of them is that a good book has the power to take you into someone else's world. Mm -hmm. And I feel like especially right now in the world we're living in, the ability to, to see what it's like to live in someone else's life or uh, another place, another country, another region, another state, um, to see the world for 300 pages through the eyes of someone going through something that you just can't imagine going through, uh, whose experience is completely foreign to your own, feels a lot more familiar when you can experience it through the written word and yeah. that's always been a really powerful thing and uh, I think it's so important right now
0: it just it sounds very Atticus Finch to me which but I just love the line where he says I'll have to paraphrase here but you you don't really know another person until you've walked a mile in his shoes and, um, and I, I think it's true a good book a good book does let you do that I've known a lot of people in my life and I would include myself on this list and I would certainly include my daughter on this list who didn't read a lot in the years immediately after college Mm -hmm. because we had spent 16 years of our life being told, you must read this now, you must read this now, you must read this now, and you're going to have to write a paper about it and fill out a quiz about it and take a test about it. And we were just sort of fed up with the whole endeavor. And maybe it didn't even occur to us that reading could be something enjoyable because Mm -hmm. it had always been a required task. How do you think we can teach reading and literature in a way that will propel people into the reading life rather than scare them away from it.
1: All right. Let me start by saying I'm not an educator. That's okay. Total hack in this regard. But I love Jane Austen. Um, My blog takes its name from a Jane Austen character. (laughs) And readers are shocked to hear that my children, who um, are now... Old enough to read Jane Austen, I mean they're in middle school and high school, uh, have not yet, and I am strongly discouraging them from doing so. Say, it's up to, every once in a while they'll say, like, Mom, is it time for me to read Pride and Prejudice? Like, Mom, do you think I, I think really short, like, could I just read this one? And my answer is, you can if you want to, but I think you'll be happier if you wait. And the reason is, I feel like I thought so many classics that I now love were so boring and awful because I read them when I was 12 or 15 or 17. I think by the time I was in college, a good professor could show you what it was all about. But even when I was a senior in high school, I was just beginning to understand that, oh, these books are actually good. And something I've noticed, I don't know if this is national, but it's something I've definitely noticed in my community, is that today's students are reading some classic works younger and younger and I hear the schools bragging about it like oh well your child will read The Great Gatsby in 6th grade you don't have to wait till 10th grade and I don't think this is a good idea I think if you read books before you're ready for them before you can appreciate them you're going to think they're boring and awful and I wonder how much more kids and adults because those kids grow up to be today's readers um, today's adult readers would be uh, more excited about the reading life if they weren't Handed something they weren't ready for right, in right. school, and because it does, it just sucks all the joy out of it.
0: I mean, you, you certainly describe my experience exactly. My father, as um, a college literature professor, taught Jane Austen. Mm-hmm. I didn't teach her personally, but taught her books to other people. <laughs> uh, and and when I was twelve or thirteen, I decided I was, you know, a sophisticated young man, and I was going to read *Pride and Prejudice*. Yeah. And I, Totally didn't get it. My reaction to reading it was, my father is wasting his time with his career teaching this soap (laughs) opera, you know. And I didn't come back to it until I was in my Uh thirties, and then I loved it. I was, it's funny and it's brilliant. And and, but yeah, I definitely was not ready for it at that at that age. Uh, And it would have been nice if somebody had had kind of warned me off of it. Uh, You mentioned one of my favorite writers, David Lodge, on the first page of your book, and a lot of my favorite writers like. David Lodge, I think it's fair to say, are not household names. My shelves are full of books by Eric Kraft and Robertson Davies and Tom Sharp. How do we cut through the wall of publicity that publishers create for their top five sellers and find those mid-listers who can sort of speak to us personally?
1: Ah, that's the trick, right? The wall of publicity. What a great phrase. It's not easy, but I will say that It's worth even, I think a lot of people don't know that's what they want. They don't Mm -hmm. know the pure delight of finding a book that's not for everyone. Um, I hate star ratings personally. I just don't, I don't like them. I don't like the system. I write
0: reviews, but I never put star ratings. I just can't do it. Yeah, I agree. All
1: right. You're doing, you're doing your part, Charlie. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but to find a book that has a star rating of 2.8 that is absolutely perfect yeah. for you. Because reading is personal. And you need to find those books that are, they feel like they were written for you. Um, something I do talk about a lot, and I, I love Publishers. I'm glad they're putting out books. I'm glad they're excited about it. I don't read the flap copy mm-hmm. when I'm deciding what to read. It's not written by the author. It's written by someone whose job is to make you leave the bookstore with the book. And I think a lot of readers don't know that. Um, I think a personal connection is really the best way to do it. Or a, a trusted source. Mm-hmm. Um, some, a taste, uh, Someone who has taste that you know and you trust and who's knowledgeable about the world of books and reading, it could be a librarian, it could be your neighbor, it could be your favorite literary podcaster who can say, oh, you're interested in a book like this? Well, have you heard of? And whatever goes in that blank, I hope you pay attention.
0: You read about meeting people who confess that they've never read Jane Austen, for instance, and in particular who confess that they've never read Pride and Prejudice. And I've been amazed and really... Humbly pleased to see how many readers of my novel First Impressions have told me that it inspired them to go and read Pride and Prejudice because First Impressions is a novel about Jane Austen and about Pride and Prejudice to a certain extent Uh, and and I can remember for myself for instance I read the air affair Mm -hmm. before I had ever read read Jane Eyre. So this has happened to me, too But are there modern books that have led you back to tackle classics that you sort of never had gotten around to
1: Oh I'm sure there are. I love hearing that about first impressions because I find I'm often recommending it the other way around mm-hmm. because it's such a fun literary mystery, and people always want to know what should they read next after they've run out of a Jane Austen novel. Right. And I think <laughs> it's so fun, and it sends you back into her life, and then they want to read Pride and Prejudice all over again, and that's not a terrible thing.
0: Well, I think it's interesting that there's kind of this... Uh, I don't know if we can call it a genre, but there, there are that are there are modern novels that sort of directly connect to the classics, um, like what Jasper Ford does, like what I did in First Impressions. I'm oh, sure and I'm a I'm sucker sure for others. a good
1: retelling. Well, uh, I'm a sucker for retelling, and sometimes they're good. But that's my genre that I'll often pick up and give a try, no yeah, matter what. Yeah. There's a new Pride and Prejudice coming out that's set in Pakistan.
0: I just I'm really excited about. Uh, well, that. I loved um, there was a film. Called, I think it was called *Bride and Prejudice*. It was a Bollywood film.
1: For a long time, I was thought was based on the same thing. That's stupid. Why would they do that? And then I was told I really needed to watch it, and it was so much fun.
0: Did you yeah. have you seen? Um, did you see *Lost in Austin*? The I did. miniseries. I, I thought did. that was kind of cool too. I like that. I've
1: probably seen all of them. I, I, honestly, I'm going slightly off script. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do love to hear. Um, I love to hear my favorite authors talk about the works that were so formative mm-hmm. to them. Recently, we spoke with Marisa de los Santos about her new novel, and uh, I mentioned that I would be reading uh, Dorothy Sayers' Gowdy Night next. And she Mm -hmm. went, Oh, I love that! and explained why and why that particular novel in the series is so important to her and how it really changed detective fiction and how that was so fascinating. I know I do this all the time. um, If books are referenced in books or if a character in a novel I'm reading (laughs) has a favorite novel that actually exists. I am likely to pick that up next. And I love how books can just send you down a rabbit trail. One leads you to another, leads you to another.
0: Yeah, I I make an effort in my novels. I do invent some fictional books, but I try to have as many of the books that are mentioned in the novel be real books Mm -hmm. that that a reader could go and if it's a rare book they could go look at it or if it's a novel or something modern they can they can go and read it i love your stories of how books found you and and i immediately when i was reading that section of the book flashback to what happened to me this spring we spend a few weeks a year at a cottage in the english countryside and just before we left this year A friend of mine recommended that I read uh, Magpie Murders by Anthony Horowitz. I I thought, okay, well, we'll be in England. Maybe I'll see if I can pick up a copy. And then right after we got there, somebody sent me a link to an article online called Eight Mysteries Fueled by Codes, Ciphers, and Puzzles. And it included Magpie Murders, and it included my novel, The Lost Book of the Grail. So I thought, oh, well, the gods are trying to tell me something. And then I went to clean out our bookshelf where all the people who rent the cottage when we're not there leave all their, their summer reading. And here was a copy of Magpie Murders. What? So I immediately read it. My wife and I both read it. We loved it. Um, but do you think that, do you feel like that's part of what you're trying to do with your, your blog and your podcast to, to make those kind of moments happen for people, those, those moments of discovery?
1: Yes, I'm really trying to, to discuss books in such a way and put titles out there that readers will hear or read and go, oh, that sounds like the right book for me. And I can't know, I mean, I can know if I'm talking with a friend and she says, oh, I don't know what to read, do you have any ideas? Because I try not to be book glossy because I talk about <laughs> in the book. Um, in that case, you can know what someone's going through, but I would be finding the book for her. It wouldn't, it wouldn't feel like the book itself found her. And Mm -hmm. I, yes, I am. I'm trying to, trying to put books out there and, uh, frame them in such a way that a reader can think like, Oh, that's uncanny. She mentioned that. And I do hear from listeners frequently that said, okay, your podcast put me over the edge. That was the third time that week that I felt like someone had told me to read whatever particular title. And I finally took the hint and you were right, I should. I didn't really tell you to read it, but I'm glad it was the right book for you. That's so funny about the Magpie Pine
0: Sometimes I hear people in my generation, and for the sake of politeness, I'm not going to tell our listeners what my generation is, (laughs) but they say, I just never got into the habit of reading. And you sort of touched on this earlier, but is it ever too late to begin the reading life? And more importantly, how would you recommend, especially an older non-reader, to sort of enter into that life. Okay.
1: Well, the first thing they should do is buy an Mm e-reader. I'm totally kidding. I have found that many people have fallen away and I've heard from people who have gotten back in the habit at age 19 or 39 or 42 or 78 and it's so great to hear. The short version is it's never too late. Um, When you fall out of the habit, if you're telling me this, I know that you at least recognize it. Mm -hmm. It's helpful to many people to just plan. 15 minutes, know when you're going to read, put it in your calendar, like leave your book on the counter so you don't forget. Out of sight, out of mind is a real thing. And if you have a book that you are actually excited about reading, because that's important too, um, in your line of vision, you are much more likely to pick it up starting small helps a lot of people 15 minutes a day or something really short just to make you feel like, oh look, I finished a book, a whole book for the first time this year. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter who's 80 pages, you finished a book. And if it were 800, maybe you wouldn't have. And then tell people you're interested in getting back and reading and they will have suggestions for you. If this will make you not read, then keep it to yourself. But many people find if others know they're interested in reading, they will help put good books that they may be interested in their path, and they will ask, have you finished that book yet? And sometimes uh, people need the reminder.
0: One of the things I did in my, probably in my 30s, that helped me start to embrace the classics again Mm -hmm. uh, was during Lent, I would make this deal with myself that I'm going to spend more time reading than I spend watching television, Mm -hmm. and Lent overlaps with the NCAA basketball tournament. And so I would literally, like, Put the thing on mute during halftime and read for 20 minutes, yeah. 20 minutes of David Copperfield. And for, for years, I would do a big Dickens novel every, mm-hmm. every year at that time of year. And it, it, it did. It sort of helped develop um, a habit that then could sort of be propelled into to other times of the year. You mentioned, you've mentioned you mentioned e-readers. We have audio books. We have tablets. We have mass market paperbacks. We have trade paperbacks. There's even this old-fashioned thing we see sometimes called a hardcover book. Um, I don't think ever in the history of publishing have readers had so many different ways they can interact with text. What, what are your favorite formats and, and why? And do you have formats that you use in different contexts?
1: That's a great question. And I do. I personally love a good hardcover. Although mm-hmm. it's... I've really learned recently that some readers will wait for the paperback edition, not just because it's cheaper or to show they have patience, but because they like a book that will just flop open. I like my books to be pretty. (laughs) This is a value for me. But if I'm traveling and I just can't take my milk crate full of books like we can on a long road trip like we do when we go to the beach every summer... Now we need two milk crates for our family of six. Um, I love a Kindle that I can actually carry with me on the airplane, unlike Mm -hmm. my book crate, because then I can take multiple books without um, needing to take an extra suitcase, because I love reading, but I don't want to check my bag of books, because what if the airline loses it? That would be tragic. And I've only in the past four or five years become a big audiobook listener. I didn't think I was interested in that format and I finally realized that if I gave it a try then I could listen to books while I go running or fold the laundry Mm -hmm. or do the dishes or walk the dog and you can get more reading in that way Uh, I did discover the secret for me ironically wasn't to I thought I needed to slow down so I could keep my focus but it turned out I needed to speed up so Mm -hmm. my mind didn't wander and since then I really love a a good audiobook especially if it has a narrator that uh, speaks an accent that is not mine like Australian <laughs> or British.
0: When I uh, am, am working on a novel sometimes I find it helpful to just listen to a passage I'm working on be read out loud by my computer and I have, her, I have the computer set for this uh, Scottish woman's voice, <laughs> which just lends this gravitas to your prose that would not have if I were just reading it to myself. That's amazing. I, I do find, it seems to me that audiobooks, maybe more than any other platform, have really been transformed by upgrades in technology. When it, when it went from you had to carry around a box of cassettes mm-hmm. to you have a phone in your pocket that can have mm-hmm. 20 books on it. Suddenly, I know all these people who, like yourself, are, are listening to a lot of audiobooks. My wife almost always has a print book and an audiobook going at the mm-hmm. same time, and she'll she'll use them in, in different contexts.
1: That's true. My husband and I really loved audiobooks 15 years ago when we bought our first house and were painting it. And it mm-hmm. was fine to have our old boom box. we get the CDs from the library next door. We could go through it. But as soon as we were done painting the house and we would be listening to them on the go. I mean, there was no on the go. I guess you could do cassettes in the car, but yeah. you're right. That was hard. And, but now with so many people having the option to listen to a book in their pockets, yeah, they're really having a heyday.
0: I find it's a very surreal experience to listen to audiobooks of my own books, because it's a bit like I was, a, I was a playwright for a long time and it's a bit like watching actors, you know, speak your words, but it's, it's more disembodied, you know, and you're not sort of consciously thinking of, the book that I'm writing is the beginning of a creative process that is completed by the reader. And I really believe that, Mm -hmm. but you actually hear that happening when you're listening to an audio book, you hear the reader making decisions about how to, how to portray an emotion that you might not have thought about when you're writing the text. And so I I find it a, I find it interesting, but it also does put, you know, sort of one other person between the reader and the, And the consumer, the the the, I mean, between the author and the consumer.
1: Have you listened to the whole thing of all your books?
0: I've listened to most of them. Sometimes I listen to them when I'm like driving on book on book tour, and I know people are going to ask me questions about the book, and I wrote the book you know three years ago, and I'm like I better maybe I should listen to this, and and it is it's it's a fascinating experience. Uh, There's there's a scene in First Impressions actually that really drove it home for me where there's an argument between two of the of the characters, and I imagined that. Their voices sort of escalating as the argument went on, until the point where they're sort of shouting at the end. Yeah. But I don't put that in the text. Yeah. And the way the reader did it was at the end of the argument, the, the last line she delivers almost as a whisper, and it was it was brilliant. I mean, it was haunting. Yeah. It worked very very well. But yeah. it was but it sort of really illustrated to me how that is a collaboration.
1: That's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. That's also very brave of you. <laughs>
0: We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give us all something to think about and give our listeners some special insight into you. Are you ready for the speed round?
1: You're a tough speed round, Charlie. As ready as you'll ever be. I'm ready.
0: What word do you love to work into your writing?
1: I like words like flummoxed.
0: Mm. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing?
1: Oh, I hate, I promise... It's so overused, especially in every television show ever created. Mm. People are always promising things.
0: (laughs) Where's your favorite place to write?
1: The room in my house that has great daylight and horrible Wi-Fi.
0: (laughs) Where could you never write?
1: I wish I could write on airplanes because I know so many people get so much done. It's not me.
0: To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention?
1: I end a lot of sentences with prepositions Mm. because that's how people talk.
0: What was the first book you remember reading?
1: The first book I remember being read to. Mm -hmm. I think it's called Who's Got the Apple? But at my house, it was only ever called A Man in a Striped Suit. was walking past a fruit store. My dad (laughs) loved it and read it and can recite it from memory to this day.
0: What are you reading now? I
1: just started the new Diane Setterfield Once Upon a River. Oh,
0: great. What book would you like to have written?
1: One of those wistful, literary, well-crafted but not boring contemporary novels. I guess I can't be Jane Austen. <laughs> Something by Emily St. John Mandel. If we ever meet, that won't be weird at all.
0: What sort of book would you like to write but probably never will?
1: A big family saga.
0: And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you?
1: What does it mean, Charlie, that I heard that through the, uh, the ears of a podcast host and not an author?
0: Yeah, you can answer the question any way you like, yeah.
1: As an author, I'd love to hear that that they really connected with it. I'd I'd love to hear that a reader connected with a work that, that they found because of me, whether it was something that I wrote or something that I recommended, just that it really meant something to them means a lot to me.
0: This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a new community gathering place and independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Ann Bogle, whose new book, I'd Rather Be Reading, is available wherever books are sold. And, of course, you can get signed copies right here at Bookmarks. Ann, thanks for joining us. Thank you. During the busy fall publishing season, Inside the Writer's Studio, we'll post new episodes on the 10th, 20th, and 30th of every month. On our next show, I'll be talking live at Bookmarks with Lee Zacharias about her new novel, Across the Great Lake. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.